it's crucial that we understand the question before we start to answer it. I went for an interview when I was just finishing university. I went for an interview with BP Chemicals. My dad worked for BP. And uh, I think I got an interview simply because my dad worked there. And uh, I got, uh, got an interview. And in the interview, I'd applied for a job in their strategic planning uh, unit. And so I went into the interview all geared up for it and the guy said, so you've come for a job in our strategic planning unit and I just went for it. I said, yeah, I, that's what I really want to do. I really want to be involved in uh, planning and uh, that's where I sit. And he said, well, what about marketing? He said, I said, no, no, I'm really, really interested in planning. And uh, he said, uh, not interested in marketing. He said, no, no, I mean, I've applied for a job in strategic planning. That's what I want to do. And he said... Oh, well, he said, because I'm interviewing you for a job in marketing. And if I'd picked up his clue in the question that he'd asked, what about marketing, and hadn't sunk the ship below the waterline, maybe, 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 just maybe, I'd have got a second interview. It's really crucial that you understand the question. And uh, if, as God is in the hot seat this morning, it's really crucial that we understand the assumptions behind the question, why are you such a killjoy about sex? And the first assumption behind that question is this, sex is good, harmless fun. Too many people believe that to be true. The statistics, however, tell us otherwise. In an article in the Mail last Saturday, the writer of the article made the following observation. The UK is paying the price for its promotion of sex education to ever younger children and the fact that since the permissive society of the 60s, so few value the institution of marriage. The article went on to highlight the following statistics in Europe. And uh, basically, uh, was, uh, it's an international report, but what it said was this. The teenage pregnancy rate in the UK is the highest in Europe, and it's the fifth highest in the world. The UK has the highest number of children in single parent households in Europe, and has the second highest figure in the world. It also went on to say that 43% of births in the UK are illegitimate. I also read some other statistics. The average age of people's first sexual experience is now 16 years old. So for every person who waits until they're married or 19, 20, 21, 22, whatever, you imagine how young people are experiencing sex these days. Sexually active teenage girls have higher rates of alcohol and drug abuse. That's statistically proven. And of all pregnancies, about 30% end in abortion. The article in the Mail concluded by saying this. These figures paint a gloomy picture of a society that values the short-lived pleasure of casual sexual relationships more highly than the lifelong commitment signified by marriage. Sexual liberation, like the tip of an iceberg, which looks very attractive on the surface, but under the surface carries massive dangers. And the dangers of sexual liberation are promiscuity, which can destroy self-esteem and long-term 
future relationships. How many relationships have been damaged by sexual promiscuity? Sexually transmitted diseases. In the, the last decade, there's been a substantial increase in the people being diagnosed with sexually transmitted diseases, and that's particularly young people. Unwanted pregnancies, as well as destroyed relationships. I don't know if you remember uh, the, before the start of the World Cup, and uh, World Cup fever in, in England was tarnished and overshadowed in part by Ashley Cole's very public marriage breakup following his alleged sexual indiscretions. The collateral damage from the sexual revolution of the last 50 years can be seen all around us. Let me give you another quote from another journalist. And this is something I heard PJ Smythe quote. This journalist said this, Modern sex to me is open, easy connectivity and open-mindedness. Open, easy connectivity. Sex is easy. It's just sex. There's limited meaning to the sex act and so we should be open-minded about it. In university, uh, I shared uh, a room with someone while I was in university. And uh, I remember that person um, having a game with a friend of his about how many girls they slept with. And he would phone him up and say nine. And the other guy would say ten. And it would spur him on to, uh, to greater sexual uh, acts and relationships. How sad is that? You see, what we're seeing is the end result of the philosophical views enshrined in what's called existentialism, postmodernism and relativism. Essentially, those things tell us that if it feels good, we should do it. We're the ones who decide what's right and wrong for ourselves. Why should we allow anyone to tell us what we do or how we behave? This thinking pervades the culture that we live in. Anything goes. As long as you love the other person, you can do whatever you like. Of course, the Bible shows another way to live which cuts right across that. And it's no wonder that people kick against it. We wanted to decide the rules. And yet the truth is people are confused about what is right and wrong. They're unable to decide the right way to live. Lily Allen, in her song, The Fear, which is, I suppose, a piece of social commentary, says this. This is what the chorus says. I don't know what's right and what's real anymore. I don't know how I'm meant to feel anymore. Casual sex has caused huge confusion for many. Far from the brave new world that was promised, it's resulted in chaos and confusion. Not only that, but sex is now an industry. It's an industry. Worldwide pornography brings in over £40 billion a year in business. In the United States, more money is spent on pornography than on foreign aid. 72 million people worldwide visit adult websites per annum. 10% of adults admit to internet sexual addiction, of whom 28% of those are women. 
Of men between the ages of 18 and 34, more than 70% visit a pornographic site in a typical month. On the internet, 12% of websites are pornographic. The average age a child first sees pornographic uh, material online is 11 years old. And the most popular day of the week for viewing porn is Sunday. The financial cost is massive, but the human cost is incalculable. Patrick Buchanan said this, If the sexual revolution has been a medical disaster, socially it has been a catastrophe. Why do the media not report and explore the tragic results of the sexual revolution? Because many are collaborators. Today, sex is nothing less than a religion. Paul, the Apostle Paul, in his letter to the Roman church, says this in Romans chapter 1, verses 24 and 25. And this succinctly summarizes what has happened. This is what it says. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator who is forever praised. The worship of sex has taken over from the worship of the one who created it. No one in their right mind could argue that sex is good, harmless fun. The second implication behind the question, why are you such a killjoy about sex, is this. God is anti-sex. There was a survey of the top ten fears of men in respect of church. And their, one of their fears was, I think it was number seven, was that if they start going to church, they will have less sex. Greek philosophy has had a huge influence on the church's view of sex. You may not believe that, but it's true. Plato taught that human beings were made up of body and spirit and that the body was bad and the spirit was good. And that's resulted in the church has accepted that philosophical thinking and it's, accept, and it's resulted in a view that separates the spiritual from the physical. I mean, that isn't biblical thinking at all, but it hugely influenced the early church fathers. Many were really mixed up and confused about what the Bible says about sex. And they thought that sex is bad. And let me show you what I mean, and I'm grateful to Mark Driscoll for this, listening to him preach on uh, something similar recently, and he quoted these guys who are early church fathers. Listen to this. Tertullian said he would prefer the extinction of the human race to continued sexual intercourse. Origen castrated himself because he was so convinced of the evils of sex. Castrated himself. Jerome used to throw himself in thorn bushes to cause himself pain to stop himself thinking about a woman sexually. I mean, it's crazy. 
Thomas Aquinas said that sex was only permissible for the purpose of having children, for procreation. Augustine said that sex within marriage was not sinful. Hallelujah. But lust and passion associated with it were sinful. Gregory of Nyssa taught that Adam and Eve had no sexual relationship before they sinned. And so Eve would get pregnant by eating fruit from a special tree. I mean, they really believed that. That's crazy. It's like the stork. By the way, the stork isn't true. And when you get to the 5th century, we find priests vowing not to get married because abstinence from sex became an issue of holiness. And that view continues in the Roman Catholic Church today. And yet the clear biblical expectation for Paul is for church leaders to be married and to have children and therefore have sex. And subsequent to all of this, parts of the church over the centuries have taught the importance of abstaining from sex on holy days. And so basically, you could end up only having sex on certain days of the week. And I think if you followed all the holy days, it would be like two days of the week. Woe betide you if you woke up and uh, uh, you looked at your wife and you thought, Oh no, it's Tuesday. We can't have sex till next Friday or whatever. That's how they used to operate. And it was Martin Luther who said this, The reproduction of mankind is a great marvel and mystery. Had God consulted me in the matter, I should advise him to continue the generation of the species by fashioning them out of clay. And yet still today there are people who get offended by God and sex being talked about in the same sentence as if somehow it were irreverent and ungodly. Hearing all of that, you might conclude that God is anti-sex. But that couldn't be further from the truth. Sex is God's idea. Sex is God's idea. You see, God saw that a man, Adam, needed a helper. And so we're told he formed a woman. He created us male and female. God created us male and female. What God made was good. We're told, every part of our bodies. The Bible says in Psalm 139 verse 14 that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. Our bodies are fearfully and wonderfully made. God created us with a sexual urge. God wasn't shocked when he came across Adam and Eve in the garden. He didn't suddenly walk into the garden and he suddenly found them. He said, oh my word, what are they doing? Stop it! He created them for it. He didn't. He wasn't shocked by it. He delighted in it. C.S. Lewis points out that pleasure is God's idea. The Bible celebrates sexual intimacy between a husband and a wife. In the Song of Solomon's, uh, uh, Song of Songs in the Old Testament, and Song of Songs actually means where it says Song of Songs, it means the best songs. It means the greatest hits. It's a celebration of a husband's love for his wife's love for her husband. And in it we see the delight, tenderness, contentment and satisfaction that can be derived from sexual 
intimacy. That's in the Bible. The Bible is pro-sex. In Hebrews 13 verse 4, the message version says this, Honour marriage and guard the sacredness of sexual intimacy between wife and husband. The writer of the Proverbs in the Old Testament was very clear, says this in Proverbs chapter 5 verses 18 and 19, it says this, Let your wife be a fountain of blessing for you. Rejoice in the wife of your youth. She is a loving doe, a graceful deer. Let her breast satisfy you always. May you always be captivated by her love. Actually, to say God is anti-sex just isn't supported by what you read in the Bible. So, is God a killjoy about sex? You see, for many people, they don't believe that God is against sex, but they just believe he is too restrictive. God is all about a list of do's and don'ts. God is, uh, uh, being a Christian is all about what you do and what you don't do. Actually, that couldn't be further from the truth. The Bible talks uh, uh, about someone, when they become a Christian, it says in John chapter 3, they become born again. Something happens on the inside. They are transformed on the inside. And they are released into a whole new way of living. A whole new radical lifestyle becomes available to them because God has transformed them on the inside. It's not about a list of do's and don'ts. It's because God has changed them on the inside. A new lifestyle comes out of being born again. That's what the Bible says. And so in the light of that, what does the Bible really say about sex? The first thing is, sex is to be enjoyed, not endured. Song of Songs says this, in chapter 1 verse 2, Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is more delightful than wine. It's talking about the best wine. It's not talking about some cheap old plonk. It's talking about the best wine. You may not like wine, but I, I like a glass of wine. I like a glass of nice wine. God says that sexual intimacy between a husband and wife is like a glass of the best wine. And while your experience may not be good, it doesn't mean that sex itself isn't good. Jonathan Edwards, a great Christian thinker from the 18th century, said the headlong pursuit of God is synonymous with the headlong pursuit of pleasure. Living God's way should bring great joy and pleasure to life, and that includes sex. Secondly, sex is a precious gift. I don't know if, you, uh, uh, when you've, if you've ever been given a really precious gift, really something special from someone who loves you, you've been given a really beautiful gift, and uh, someone sees what you've been given, and they come and they say, oh, can I borrow it? Oh, I'd, can I borrow that? And there's something inside you that thinks, oh, I hope they're going to look after it. Will they look after it? Because it's precious to you. And God has given sex to a husband and wife, and it's a precious, precious gift. It's not to be used lightly or thrown around. It's a precious gift. Thirdly, sex is a relationship. The Bible tells us that sex is for pleasure. 
It's for pleasure, but it's a pleasure in a relationship. And most of the problems of today spring from the delusion that sex is an activity rather than a relationship. It's primarily a relationship. Sex is a relationship. We're told in Genesis chapter 2 verse 24 that a man is to leave his mother and father and he is to hold fast or unite to his wife, be joined to his wife and they then become one flesh. Sex is about a relationship. Fourthly, sex is purposeful. Sex is not just for pleasure, but it's about procreation, it's about having children. See that in Genesis chapter 1 verse 28. It's about oneness and intimacy. See that in Genesis 2 verse 24. It's about bringing comfort to one another. You see that in 2 Samuel chapter 12 verse 24. Where a, a husband and wife can comfort one another in the midst of the turmoils of life. And it's also about protection. Sex is about protecting your relationship. See that in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Sex is purposeful. But finally the Bible makes it clear that sex needs boundaries. Sex needs boundaries. And that's where the rub is for most people. Christianity allegedly, for most people, constrains freedom to choose what we want to do. That's the existentialism, postmodern view of Christianity. Someone once said this, it's about we want freedom to determine our own moral standards and it's, that's a necessity for being fully human. That's of course nonsense, that's just utter, utter nonsense. It's just a lie and it's not true. Freedom cannot just be defined in terms of the absence of constraints. Let me give you an example. If you want to be the best swimmer that you can be. And uh, what you do is you set yourself a rigid training program. It means you get up early in the morning. It means you cut out certain things out of your lifestyle. It means you have to go to bed early at night because you're determined you want to be the best swimmer you can be. And you know that you want to be free to be the best you can be in terms of swimming. And so... Discipline unleashes the potential and the ability that would otherwise be lost. And yet discipline in training doesn't guarantee, isn't going to guarantee you Olympic success in 2012. You've got to have potential. And someone summed it up like this. It's Tim Keller who said this. In many areas of life, listen to this, freedom is not so much the absence of restrictions as finding the right ones, the liberating restrictions, those that fit with the reality of our nature and the world produce greater power and scope for our abilities and a deeper joy and fulfilment. That is spiritually the case as well. Ask yourself the following question, does everyone have the right to do what they want to do sexually? If you answer that question, yes, then answer this question. Is there anyone in the world at this particular moment in time who has the right to do things that they think they can do no matter 
what they personally believe and the correctness of the behaviour. So basically, someone in the world, they're doing what they want to do, they sexually. Are they free? Is everybody free to do that? Can you think of any situation where that might not be the case? Of course you can. There are lots of situations in the world where people are doing things because they think they have the right to do them and we would say, no, you can't do that. There have to be some moral boundaries. There needs to be some moral boundaries. There isn't some, anybody in their right mind who wouldn't say that that is the case. There needs to be a moral framework undergirding our society. And God sets boundaries for sex. What boundaries does he set? Well, he says this. In the Bible he says that heterosexual marriage, heterosexual marriage, is the only context for sex to be enjoyed. It's the half that holds the flames. Outside of that, sex, the Bible says, calls it a sin. It offends God. Before marriage, it's called fornication. And after ma- once you're married, it's called adultery. Outside Sex outside of marriage with someone who's not your marriage partner is called adultery. The biblical context for sexual intercourse is the lifelong commitment in marriage between one man and one woman. Jesus summarises it as follows. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united with his wife, and they will become one flesh. He says that in Matthew chapter 19. You see, it's in that context that sex finds its true fulfilment. You see, it's not just physical, it's emotional, it's psychological, it's spiritual, and it's social. In marriage, people's whole beings are united. They're joined to each other's families. That's what happens. Something more than physical happens. And the Bible makes it clear as sex is intended for a relationship where there is lifelong commitment. And this is only expressed in marriage. Let me quote the final bit of the newspaper article I referred to earlier. This is what it said. It was quoting someone. If our life, if our long-term desire for young people is that they should enjoy a stable and satisfying family life, it isn't sex and relationships they need to learn about. Rather, they need to develop the character qualities of commitment, faithfulness, perseverance and patience that lie at the heart of an enduring marriage. Any sexual activity outside these boundaries is a distortion of what God intended and falls short of his ideal. I don't know if you've ever seen sticky tape, but if you take sticky tape, it's intended to stick something down, hold against something. But if you keep taking it off and sticking it against something else, what happens? Eventually the stickiness just starts to go and dissipate. Is it any wonder that people are unable to stick to one partner in marriage these days? Is it any wonder? And yet God doesn't write people off for their mistakes. Jesus, in facing a woman who's been caught in adultery, and the religious leaders of the day, they want to stone her. That's the law of the land. Rightly she she should be stoned. She's been caught in the very act of adultery. What did Jesus do? Did he pick up the first stone and did he hurl it? Surely he had every right to do it, the Son of God. No, Jesus didn't. Jesus said this, Let whoever is without sin throw the first stone. And then it says that 
In the passage in John chapter 8, it says, from the oldest to the youngest, they walked away because they knew that all of them were guilty. None of them could throw the first stone. And yet Jesus then doesn't leave this woman as she is. He turns to her and says this, leave your life of sin. Jesus gives her a wonderful opportunity to be restored. Isn't it boring being, uh, 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 as one man being married to one woman for the rest of your life? Actually, the Bible talks in uh, Timothy, it talks us about uh, being a one-man woman and being a one-woman man. That's what many early Christians had on their, uh, on, their, on their stones that marked after they died. It said, she was a one-man woman. Because it was so counter-cultural. Dagmar O'Connor, the author of How to Make Love to the Same Person for the Rest of Your Life, said this, I have put together a book which has a revolutionary premise of its own, that lifelong committed sex has the potential to be more thrilling, more varied, more satisfying in every way than any other sexual arrangement you can think of. In conclusion, is God a killjoy about sex? Not at all. It's when God's blueprint for sex is ignored that people really get hurt. We hurt ourselves. We hurt other people. We damage the society around us. But finally, and more importantly, we hurt God. Living outside of God's laws alienates us from him. And we've been considering this morning in our worship that God sent Jesus to set us free. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And Jesus is talking about the freedom that enables us to live life to the full. And so when God says don't, it's because it will do you harm. And whenever he says do this, it's because it will bring you life and freedom. Have you made mistakes? Maybe you've made mistakes. Maybe you're here, sitting here this morning thinking, I've made such terrible mistakes, I feel so guilty. God is a redeemer. God puts things that are broken back together. He's a specialist in it. He fixes what's broken. And so many people have been damaged by the world's lies about sex. We see it in the woman caught in adultery, in the prodigal son, God's great heart to restore. Maybe you've made mistakes sexually in terms of what you've done. Maybe in terms of what you've been looking at. Jesus isn't shocked. He knows what you've done. And he's waiting for you to return. If you haven't already done so, let me urge you this morning to get right with him. Maybe for you it's about forgiving others who've damaged you sexually. Be assured God sees your hurt. And yet the key for freedom is forgiveness. The only people who get caught up, uh, get damaged in this are those who can't forgive. The other person has walked away, they're not even thinking about it. And God wants to set you free. Maybe you're struggling with temptation to have sexual intercourse outside of marriage. 
Maybe your marriage is struggling. Perhaps you just feel your husband or wife doesn't appreciate you anymore. Perhaps someone you work with or know makes you feel like you haven't felt for such a long time. Maybe you're getting closer and closer to having sex with your boyfriend or girlfriend. Perhaps you're already sleeping together and you don't want to lose that intimacy. Let me say, if the only requirement for intimacy is sex, then the relationship is already doomed. Maybe your identity is caught up in sex. This is who I am. Actually, God is God. Sex isn't God. God is God. Your identity is determined by God in heaven, not by your so-called sexuality. And too many people ask the wrong questions. Can I do this? Can I be this? In terms of my sexuality and come to church? It's the wrong question. The question is this. The right question to ask is this. That a God who loves me so much, that a God who cares for me so much, that a God who was willing to send his only son to die on a cross 2,000 years ago, that I might be free and that I might live life to the full. If he asks me to do anything, would I do it for him? That's the right question. That's the right question to ask. And if you do ask that question, you suddenly see where your identity is. What's the most important issue in your heart? Is it about God? Is it about God and a relationship with God? Or is it wrapped up in something else? Is a relationship with God one way? Is it all about me adjusting to God? Actually, what the Bible says is that God has adjusted to us in the most amazing way. He became a man. He died for our sin, for our wrongdoing. Jesus became a sacrifice for us. And out of our love for him, and all that he has done for us, surely there must be an appropriate response from our hearts. Paul summarised this when he said this, The love of Christ constrains us. What God has done for me constrains me. That's why I want to live in a different way. That's why I want to be different, because God has done something so marvellous, so incredible on the inside. It's wonderful. I'm going to ask the musicians to come out. We're going to finish with a song. And as the musicians come out, we're going to sing a song that just focuses on what Jesus did on the cross, that Jesus' blood cleanses us. And this morning, if you know that you're struggling, you've been struggling with all sorts of stuff, I'm not going to ask you to come to the front, but I'm going to suggest that during as we sing this song, you might want to come to God as part of your worship and say, God, forgive me, clean me up, help me. Whatever you've done, nothing is too bad for God to sort out. Jesus' blood cleanses from every sin. This is a verse that someone gave to me that set me free. Listen to this. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself and blemished to God, cleanse our consciences 
from acts that lead to death that we may serve the living God Jesus' blood can cleanse you this morning whatever you've done whatever it is whatever the issue is come to him this morning as we sing this song and offer yourself as a sacrifice say Jesus forgive me